If you'd grab your notes, we are uh, looking in a series about what the Bible has to say about sin. And today, in our last week, we have come to the most unpopular part of what the Bible teaches about it. So I've asked the ushers to bar the doors and lock them, um, just as long as you would stay at least for the first point, and then you can, you can make a decision. Because what this teaching is going to show you today is that God is an angry God, and that God does get angry. In fact, if you just look at verse 5 that was just read to you, he says, you come to help, you come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways, but when we continue to sin against them, you were what? How then can we be saved? Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. O look on us, we pray, for we are your people. Now, I'll just say from the very beginning, the poles aren't very high on this attribute of God. How many of you would agree? One of the ways you know that is because if you went to any high school or junior high school and went through, you know, uh, colonial history, maybe the mid to 18th century, you would have seen an excerpt about one of the most famous sermons ever preached um, by Jonathan Edwards, 1741, and it was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Can you imagine a pastor preaching on that regularly. What if we had a series around here and I called it Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? And and usually in your history books, there was a little excerpt about that and a student would inevitably raise their hand and say, teacher, did, did people actually believe that back then? And usually a teacher would respond with something like, well, that's what most people believed back then. But today we have a more, well, we have a more accepting view of God, that God is loving and just wants relationship with people and accepts people. And that that would be pretty much the gist of it. Because the truth is we have lost connection with it in our society and in our culture. Now, I'm here to tell you that is a bad thing. I'm here to tell you that you need an angry God. You need an angry God who gets angry at sin. You need an angry God in your mind and in your heart. Listen, you need an angry God if you're going to live with any hope. You need an angry God if you're going to live with any humility. And you need an angry God if you're going to ever know how really loved you are. Now, again, I don't know where everybody is here. And you may be a guest with us today and you're like, my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? And, and, you're, saying, and you're saying, I don't believe in an angry God. But I'm going to tell you, if you don't believe in an angry God who hates sin, you're just hurting yourself. And so you wonder why. Well, we're just going to work through the text. First of all, verses 1 through 3, if you just look at it in your notes, verses 1 through 3 tell us you have to have an angry God to live with hope. He says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, that the mountains would tremble before you. Come down and make your name known to your enemies. Cause nations to quake before you. Lord, that we would be able to live in hope in a broken world. Now listen, one of the things that is easy to miss when you study these books, like Isaiah and like Ezekiel and any large chunks of the Old Testament, is what you and I have to remember is that they all have a historical situation. In other words, when you read these stories, they aren't lectures. They aren't written to you as essays. 
They were written in a specific historical situation. And everybody agrees that this passage in Isaiah is written to a nation, Israel, that is facing tremendous injustice. Their capital city, Jerusalem, has been torn down. Their own little babies and children have been slaughtered and killed. You can read about it. Psalm 137, if you just read that in your own time, it tells you all about this. It talks about the little heads of the infants being dashed against the rocks by the victors. There's captivity, there's chains, there's terrible injustice. And then we see in verses one through three, what they're saying is, God, oh God of justice, would you come down and judge the injustice? Oh God, rend the heavens, he says that the mountains will quake before you. In other words, what they're saying is, God, if you would go after the perpetrators of this. Have you ever been wronged? Anybody here ever been wronged? I mean, terribly wronged. They're crying out that, God, would you make the wrongs right? That they would be like dust before you. That they would be like burning twigs and that they would crumble. See, this is what verses one through three here is saying. And I'm gonna say to you, How in the world can you possibly live in a world with injustice without any, with any hope at all unless you believe in a God who gets angry at the injustice? How are you gonna live through this life? So here's the first point, and it's a preliminary point, but I want you to write it down because it really is real important to what we're talking about here. Write this down. First of all, that God's anger in the Bible is not like our anger. So we should probably get that straight from the beginning. In other words, I'm saying God's anger isn't out of control like ours is sometimes. It's not unbridled like ours is sometimes. It's not just an emotional reaction. Or maybe you've had an experience with somebody who's angry and it's fly off the handle abusive. Again, I don't know your background, but I want to say that's not what God's anger is like. I want to define God's anger for you, and I want you to write this down quickly, because this will help you to understand what we're talking about. When we talk about the anger of God, what we're talking about is a settled, fixed, just write this down, a settled, fixed, implaceable, irrevocable and incorruptible opposition to injustice and sin and evil. Let me say that again. When we talk about God's anger, what we're talking about is it is a settled, fixed, it is an irrevocable, incorruptible opposition to injustice and evil and sin. Where God says no debt no debt will go unpaid. God says this, He says every account in the end is going to be settled and nobody, listen to me friends, nobody is gonna get away with anything. Do you know some of the biggest confessions of my life, which I won't go into detail on here, but they are big failures and big sins that certainly would disqualify me and have from being a pastor in my history. It's a whole other story. But some of the biggest confessions of my life in coming clean about those things was because I knew that I'm not gonna get away with anything anyway. I may take that thing to heaven, but the reality is, it's not going away. It's happened. 
And so I resolved in my own mind, boy, I might as well just confess in this life and have my heart right with the Lord that nobody gets away with anything. Now, what the Bible means when it says that there is an angry God, right away, some of you I know, you're gonna object. People immediately put up their hands in our progressive society today, and they say, now wait a minute, Pastor Shane, one of the problems, you might be thinking this right now, Pastor Shane, one of the problems with an idea of an angry God is that that's a primitive God. Pastor, we need to work for a peaceful world, not a vengeful God who bears the sword. Pastor, don't you understand? That leads to intolerance. No, what are you gonna say we need maybe? You're gonna say we need an accepting God. They say if you're gonna believe in, in a God, no, pastor, sin, it's, sin is in the eye of the beholder. Pastor, sin is a matter of perspective. A God of vengeance, that leads to intolerance. That leads to violence. By the way, that is one of the most powerful refutations of the belief right there that we have to get beyond a God of vengeance. But I'm here to tell you the exact opposite is true. Don't listen to culture on this. In fact, write this down. Here's the first major point. You and I need an angry God or we won't have true peace in an unjust world. Write that down. We need an angry God or we're not gonna have true peace in an unjust world. Recently, I, I read a book and it was written by a great author. Uh, his name is, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Miroslav Volf, he's Croatian. And he wrote the book, uh, Exclusion and Embrace, incredible. Now let me read to you his thesis. Because he is Croatian, he was raised in former Yugoslavia and he has seen all the stuff that people, like the, the people in this passage was written to. People that are crying out for vengeance. People that are crying out for injustice. Listen, this guy's seen all that, and he's actually been through it. And this is what he says, I wanna read it to you. He says, the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. Now I wanna say that again, because if nobody's eyebrows are raising, then you didn't hear me. <laughs> Let me say it again. The practice of nonviolence requires a belief in a God of vengeance. Because what he's saying is the only way to nonviolence is if you believe in a God who does get angry at injustice. And he says, without an angry God, you'll never get into nonviolence. See, because he's somebody who would say, don't retaliate. He's somebody who would say, bless your enemies, turn the other cheek, walk the extra mile. But how does he make that point? And here's what he says, it's, it's a great book, you should pick it up and read it. He says, this is gonna be popular among many Christians, and he talks about us, he says, especially the Christians in the West. Christians in the West are gonna want to dismiss it. He asks you, but please imagine something, and I'll read. He says, imagine that you're delivering a lecture in a war zone, and among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been plundered and burned and leveled to the ground. Who daughter, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit in front of you, because this is what he's experienced. Here's what he says. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. And then he says, look at what he says here, and I just quoted him. He says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not take a final end to violence, well, that guy would not be worthy of our worship. 
What he's saying is, is that anybody who says a God of vengeance is gonna lead to violence actually hasn't been a true victim of violence themselves. What he's saying is people in the West, they live in a nice suburban bubble. They live in a very nice area where you yourself have never been a great victim of terrible injustice. And when you're a victim of injustice, what's gonna happen is you will have to pay it back unless you're assured that there is a God who's angry at injustice, who hates it. Unless you're assured that there is a God who is gonna settle every account, that nobody gets away with anything. He says, listen to me, he says, unless you believe in a God of divine vengeance, you will not be able to resist picking up the sword and be the avenger yourself, or you'll just die in despair. Now, most of us who live in the world and read this, you know, we are far more safe, (laughs) we are far more happy, we're far more secure, than any other people who's ever lived in the world, all throughout history. But if you've lived with injustice, you need an angry God, and you won't be able to live in peace in an unjust world unless you know God's gonna make your wrongs right. But I'm telling you today, and listen to me, friend, if you've been wronged, God will make that right. You don't need to make it right. God will make it right. You don't need to live with vengeance because God is an avenging God that brings justice. Now that's the first thing I'd say as to why you need an angry God. Here's the second thing, just write this down. You need an angry God if you're gonna live in humility. Write that down. You need an angry God if you're gonna live in humility. Now, this is extremely interesting, guys, because all the commentators, they they show you, you start reading this and they all describe this fantastic relationship, or I should say ironic relationship between the first and the second stanzas that we've read. No, the first stanza, verses one through three, you just read it. Let's read it again. It says, oh, that you would, in fact, let's read it together. Do we have it up here? All right, let's read it together. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies, okay? So he's, he's saying, God, make this happen. We're the victims of injustice. We call down the God of judgment. Make the mountains shake. Now, They're saying, what do we want to happen to our enemy is we want the wind to blow them away. But then you get to verses four through six, and look at how ironic it is. Let's read that one, verses four through six, if we can put that on the screen. He says, since ancient times no one has heard, perceived, no eye has seen any God beside you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. Now, we're gonna read this last part together, but you gotta let this sink into your heart. Look at what he says now. Here we go. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Now, this is why these passages are so ironic, because you look at them and you say, well, who's shriveling up now? They are. The very thing that they called on God to do to somebody else. You know, maybe this morning in your prayer time, 
Because I know you're getting up and spending it with Jesus the first part of every day. Am I right? Come on. And, uh, and maybe this morning in your prayer time, you got up and you spent time with the Lord and you thought of that person that wronged you and you called down vengeance, you know. Oh, Lord, bring justice upon their heads, you know. And that felt good. But then you see what they're doing is they're saying, I deserve it too. What do we learn? What we learn is, is that verses one through three, they're calling down on these people to be judged, but then they say, well, we deserve it as much as they do. Now listen, this is absolutely critical, guys, because this is one of the great tests to know whether or not you're getting in touch with the real God, the biblical God. Because lots of times you think you're getting in touch with God and you're not. You're walking with bad doctrine or a bad philosophy. You're creating God in your image instead of conforming yourself to his image. Let me show you what I mean. Listen, there are two kinds of people in this world. How many? Two groups of people, super prominent. There are those who divide everybody into two groups of people and those who don't. No, I'm just kidding. There's not those. (laughs) Two groups of people, very prominent. On the one hand, you have people that we would call religious people. People that have absolute moral values. And those people tend to judge other people. They believe usually, verses one through three, if God would just come down, I hear this in small group all the time, if God would just come down and if he would just judge the bad people. People say, oh, well, I don't cheat on my spouse. I come from a good family. I obey the Ten Commandments, I give to the poor. See, what you're doing is you're living in verses one through three. You're saying, if God would come down and just judge those people who deserve to be judged. Come on. Anybody feeling remotely guilty here? Now, on the other hand, you have the religious people's nemesis. Who are, who's, who's the nemesis of religious and moral people? Well, these are the progressive people who have turned their back on moral traditional values. You might call them secular people. And you know, here's what they do. They say, well, pastor, sin's in the eye of the beholder. Everybody has their own way of defining sin. I have my truth, you have your truth. Speak your truth. By the way, if I told you that is so stupid. What's sinful for you isn't necessarily sinful for me. Pastor, what we must do is embrace. We should embrace everybody. We should tolerate everybody and accept everybody and be very tolerant. Now here's the problem with these groups of people. They're also living in verses one through three. Because what they're saying is, the trouble with this world is all those people who are intolerant. And they're not tolerant of the intolerant. And you come to find that they're equally as intolerant as everybody else. But they say, well, I'm not like them. You see, the religious people, here's what I'm saying, guys, you gotta get this. The religious people and the irreligious people are all walking around saying, oh, if everybody would just be like me, we'd be okay. Don't you see the problem? If everybody would just have my point of view, we wouldn't be in trouble. If somebody would just go, God, if you would just go knock down these other people, So I guess what I'm saying to you, it really doesn't matter whether you're a religious person or an irreligious person, whether you're a conservative or a liberal, if you're living in verses one through three, you've got a problem. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, let me tell you what happens to a true Christian. Because I want you to gauge yourself. Take a good look at yourself. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that I'm speaking to what it should be in the church. 
When a person comes and they begin to see what God is really like, they inevitably say, verse six, they say all of us have become like one who's unclean. Now that's the heart of a Christian who's been changed. All of us. All of us have become like one who's unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Now that is a stunning statement. You know why? Because the Christian has begun looking past the externals into his or her own heart and they've started looking at their motivations. And you know what they say? They say, even my righteous deeds suck. Even my, even my religiousness and my goodness is motivated. Even my religious deeds and my moral deeds stink. See, let me just tell you something. A Christian looks at their own heart and the Christian comes to see, I've, a person should come to see that I've come to realize that the reason for my sins and the reason for my good deeds, it's all the same. I'm just trying to be my own Lord. I'm just trying to be good enough. And when I do a good deed, I'm trying to be my own Lord too because I'm trying to earn God's approval. If I do a good deed, I want to feel superior to others, like I'm living life better than they are. Or when I do good deeds, maybe I'm trying to get God to do right by me. Have you ever been living for Jesus and you're on fire for God and it lasts about six months and then you start to get a little bitter toward God, like, God, why hasn't my life changed? God, I've been living for you. God, I even started giving and I haven't made a million dollars yet. What's up? God, what's going on? I hear people say things like that all the time. Why isn't my life better because I've started doing better? Oh, forget this. But don't you see? See, this is what Nietzsche called the hermeneutic of suspicion. You've got to question yourself. Don't you see the problem is you've been doing it for the wrong reasons. You've been doing it because you think you can barter with God. You've been doing it because you think somehow you can earn his approval. And don't you think that God knows that? One of the ways that you can tell that your righteousness is a filthy rag is, listen, when you do all these good things that you do, do you find that you're always still angry? Because if you do, that's a sign that God isn't, God isn't really your motivation here. You know, some of you, it's like, boy, I've been living a good life, and my brother and sister-in-law, they've not been, good, been living a good life. Why are they blessed? <laughs> are you angry about that? Because if you're angry about that, that's showing something in your heart. Why is my life going so bad? The Christian will say, I see that I don't deserve anything good. Whoa, wait a minute, self. Why are you being good anyway? <laughs> I don't deserve it. Anything. That's a Christian. Now, when you believe in a God of judgment and justice who sees your motives, I'm gonna tell you something, you'll be humbled. If you believe that God could look beyond your deeds into your heart and you believe that you deserve judgment, you know what's gonna happen in your life? If you believe that you deserve judgment as much as that most immoral person that you think of, if you think you deserve judgment as much of them, you're gonna be a great neighbor. What an amazing person you will be, because you'll be a humble person. But if you think that you're more superior, if you look at the people who are down and out and have struggled with the major sins or however you would like to classify it, and you look down on them, you're gonna be a terrible neighbor because you're gonna be so superior to everybody. You won't be humble. 
Let me tell you something else. If you don't believe in a God of judgment and justice, you won't be able to forgive people. Have you noticed that? I'd, like a, I'd almost ask for a show of hands. Who's holding on to unforgiveness today? But I won't do that. But you think about the people that you've not forgiven. If you believe in a God of justice, you have the freedom to forgive them because God's gonna make it right. Let go of being God. Forgive them. Release them from the debt they owe you and walk in freedom. That's what God wants to do in your life. If you think God's gonna square all the accounts, guys, I'm gonna tell you, some of you today, you are here and you are carrying around such tremendous burdens because you're trying to be God. You're holding on to that unforgiveness (laughs) and God says, why are you trying to be God? You get so upset You don't understand an angry God. You're putting yourself in the shoes of the judge. So if you're having trouble forgiving somebody right now, let it go. Let me give you the third reason. This last major point. You also need an angry God if you're gonna really understand how how loved you are, how much God loves you. You need an angry God if you're really gonna understand how loved you are. Now I know that sounds the most contradictory of anything that I've said today, because people say, what? That doesn't make any sense. The angrier you understand God to be against sin and evil, the greater his wrath, the greater his justice, the greater his judgment. He's saying, the more you believe in hell, you're saying to the degree that I believe in those truths, I'll know how much he loves me? Yep. That's how you'll know he loves you. Because let's move on right on through this text. You ready? Something very interesting he says in verses eight and nine. Here we go. Everybody look at this scripture. Let's read this together again. He says, yet, O Lord, you are our father. We are the, you are the, we are the work of your hands. Do not be angry beyond measure. O Lord, do not remember our sins forever. Now, this is very interesting here because God here is characterized as a father, and as an artist. He says, oh Lord, you're our father, which makes us his children. He says, oh Lord, you are the potter, which makes us the clay. You are the artist, therefore we are the what? Art. But there are two things derived from this idea. The first thing that you get derived from this idea, write this down, is that God's love is actually the cause of his anger. Write that down. God's love is actually the cause of his anger. Because notice, he doesn't say, yet, O Lord, you are our father and you're our artist, so you shouldn't be angry. No, 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 that's not what he says. Whoever said that love is supposed to be accepting of everything that we do? Whoever said that? That's what culture is telling you today. He says, he says, Lord, because you're a father and you're an artist, you shouldn't be angry. No, he says, because you're our father and our artist, you should be angry forever. You should, what he says, you should, you, you, you should be angry. Now he says, Lord, don't be. He says, Lord, don't be angry beyond measure. Literally, it means don't be angry unto muchness. Don't be angry forever. But the first thing it teaches us is that because he's a father and he's an artist, his anger is justified. Because how many of you here are fathers? We have a few fathers in here. Did you ever get angry with your kids? 
What motivated that anger? Would you say you would be angry with your child? See, fathers and artists get angry. If God looks at this world and he sees how we're treating each other, he sees how we're living, he sees how you're treating him. If God is not furious, then he is not a father. If he's not, I'm gonna tell you, if God is not furious, then he's not an artist because an artist goes to great pains to scrape and rub and erase and redraw that for which is art. That's what they'll do. C.S. Lewis, he said it this way. I don't have this on the screen for you, but I just want you to think about this quote. He said, anger is what love bleeds when you cut it. Let me say that again. Anger is what love bleeds when you cut it. Because listen to me, friend, I'm telling you, if you have somebody that really loves you and you're screwing up and you're doing something wrong and you're blowing it and you're doing lots of bad things, if that person is not furious at you, they don't love you. It means they're indifferent to you. It's the opposite of love. And it doesn't matter what they say to you. It's just sentimentality. Do you know what the problem is with our world today? Is that we don't love each other like we should. We're indifferent to each other. Go live your life as long as you're happy. What a curse. Oh, honey, as long as you're happy, just go live, do what you want. Really? Are we that indifferent to people's behavior in eternity? So you see why we need an angry God? Because don't you see, love and fury, it's two sides of the same coin. So God's love is the cause of his anger. Second thing that we're told here when we read that passage, think about this. God's love, write this down, is not only the cause of his anger, but God's love is also the satisfaction of his anger. Write that down. His love is the satisfaction of his anger. Now what do I mean? It's not just here, but all through the Bible, we're being taught that it's his love that causes his anger, but we're also being taught that it's right that he should be angry. It is satisfactory that he should be angry. God, because you are a father, you should be angry. Now he says, don't be angry forever. Don't be angry unto muchness. God, please do something about your anger. But God says, I love you, and that's why I'm angry. It is satisfying for me to be angry. God says, I hate what you're doing to yourself. Some of you are living with these private sins. I don't know what they are. I don't need to know. I know that I've had them myself. That's how I know you have them, because we're all the same. <laughs> we're all sinners. And some of you are living with these private sins, and you won't tell anybody about them. And God just looks at you and says, don't you see? I just hate what you're doing to yourself. God, are you mad at me? God says, yes, I'm mad. Look at what you're doing to yourself. I love you so much, I'm mad at you. I gotta tell you, you know how I know my wife loves me? Is because she'll look at me sometimes and say, you're an idiot. Look at you. You know how I know she loves me? Because she'll see me and she'll say, honey, you're getting a little wide around the waist section there, buddy. You know? Or, or honey, should you really grow out a full beard? Your face looks a little fatter than it normally does. Or, honey, she's gonna be mad for me sharing those examples with you, but I'm just saying. Love motivates. I hate what you're doing to yourself. I hate what you're doing. There are times I've been in sin, and my wife knows it. She can see it in the patterns of my life. I'm not having quiet times like I should. I'm not spending time with Jesus like I should. She'll notice it, and she's like, I hate what that's doing to you, but I hate what it's doing to us. 
Honey, you're more irritable than you've ever been. You're gripey. You're not treating the kids right. Believe me, it sucks to be my wife. <laughs> Boy, you guys need to pray for her. <laughs> but it's truthful. And it's loving. Why? Because verse 17, look at what he says. He says, behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. In other words, what God is saying here is that because he's truthful and he's loving, he says, I'm gonna recreate you, and I'm gonna change you, and I'm gonna remember your sins no more. Now, how does he do it? How does love and fury come together? Is God gonna be a God of justice? Well, he better be or he's not God. If he's God, he better walk in truth. How many of you would agree with that? He has to walk in justice. He is the truth. He is justice or he's not God. But let me ask you this. Is he gonna be a God of love? Well, he better be or we have no hope. And we're doomed no matter what anyways. Let me ask you, is he a God of fury but not love? What do you say? Is he a God of love but not fury? How can he be both? That's when you look at the cross. You look at the cross. Here's what the Bible teaches. Jesus Christ is the judge who was judged. And Jesus Christ took all of the anger and all of the wrath for all of the injustice and it went into his heart. And when you believe in him and trust him, by believe, I don't mean intellectually. The devil believes in God. It's not helping the devil at all. Believe me. I'm not just talking about, well, I believe in God. I'm saying when you trust, entrust your life over to Jesus, all that anger goes into Jesus, so much so that there's really none left for you. Now let me ask you, do you believe in a God of wrath? Somebody here may say, no, I don't. I still don't believe in a God of wrath. I believe that God is a God of love. I don't believe he punishes people. Let me ask you, what then did it cost God to love you if you don't believe in a God of wrath? And you sit there and you say, well, I don't know, pastor, maybe I guess nothing. Well, then here's my question. How do you know then that he loves you? If it doesn't cost God anything to love you, how do you know he loves you? Don't you see? Don't you see theologically? If you don't believe in hell, if you don't believe in punishment, if you don't believe in justice and judgment, you have no idea why Jesus did what he did. And it's meaningless. You have no idea. And if you don't believe in a God of justice, you have no idea how valuable you are. You're not gonna walk around looking up at the sky feeling loved because you don't have an angry God. But if you look at the cross, the angry God who paid the penalty for himself. Now look, I'm gonna conclude with this. We'll be done. We're gonna receive communion in just a minute. I wanna ask you a couple thoughts. Think about your life. Do you have a God who never says no to you? If there's anything in the Bible that you don't like, do you say, well, I can't believe that anymore? <laughs> I'm gonna leave that church. Some of you, you're getting tempted to leave the church today because of what I've taught. Well, I can't believe that anymore. Do you have a God who won't contradict you? 
Do you have a God who will never say no to you? (laughs) Do you have a God who's always just gonna do anything? Say, I'll accept you no matter what you do. Let me tell you something. If that's true, you don't have any God but yourself. You are God. Let me ask you, try to raise a kid like that. Try to raise your children saying anything you want. You know, abusive parents are terrible. (laughs) But permissive parents are just as bad. You know why permissive parents are just as bad? Because kids grow up and they feel like they're orphans. And you know what? They are. And some people are spiritual orphans because they've created a God in their own mind that doesn't call them on anything. They don't have any boundaries. And they don't live with a healthy sense of fear. Jesus says, I want you to, I want you to know me. There's a place, I'll just close with this, we'll receive communion. I know I said that before, but you know me. There's a place in Luke 16 where this rich man is down in hell and he calls to Abraham and he says, Father Abraham, if I'd have known about hell, I wouldn't have lived this way. My brothers are still alive. Would you please send somebody back from the dead to go and tell them about this place so that they could try and change their lives? And what does Abraham say? He says, no, that's not gonna be enough. And I know you sit there and you say, what? Somebody coming back from the dead? You know, Marley's ghost. Somebody coming back, that's not gonna be enough. It was enough for for Scrooge. Of course that'll be enough. And I just wanna say to you, that's fiction. I'm a pastor and here's what I see. I've seen an awful lot of people make promises to an angry God. God, I'll never do this again. Their life is going down the tubes. God, I'll never do this. It's a prayer of terror, but it's not a prayer of repentance. God, I'll never do this. And they felt like they were promises that they would keep, but promises like that, oh, I'd better do something so that God will get me out of this, I'm just telling you they never work. They never work. Write this last point down. It's because fear... Fear cannot awaken love in you. Only love can awaken love in you. For some of you, today, his anger is at work in your life. You say, what is anger? Yeah, his anger today is at work in your life and he is pestering you and he's trying to drive you into the arms of the Father by convicting you of sin. So here's what I'd say. Go along with him. (laughs) Listen to him. Let him provoke you into the arms of the Father and repent and see your life begin to really change. Can I pray for you? Father, thank you for every person here, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl. I pray in Jesus' name for your blessing to be on their life. I pray that you would be their encouragement and their hope. Lord, we remember that um, it was on the cross that you took the full wrath so that we can walk rightly with you. But we don't use that as our excuse. We know that you're still a God of justice. So Lord, we have a healthy fear of who you are. We thank you that you love us enough to care about what we do. So we repent, we yield it to you. Just pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I give you my life. I give you my life. Just say that again with all your heart. Jesus, 
I give you my life. Come and be my Lord. Save me from my sin. Free me that I'd walk with you. In Jesus' name.